welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. <clears throat> welcome today to 235 of the Bible in one year. So just a brief reminder of what you should have read to have been prepared for today's discussion. You should have read <coughs> Job chapters 8 through 11, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 28, Psalm 38, 1 through 22, and Proverbs 21, 28 through 29. So our focus for today is going to be on Acts chapter 23, verses 12 through 25. So what we saw the last time we were together was we saw the Roman commander had called an emergency meeting of the Sanhedrin in an attempt to get to the bottom of this riot. It has now been going on for several days within the city of Jerusalem. <coughs> however, however, his plan to get to the bottom of this riot did not work. It did not go according to his plan. It did not work as he wanted it to work. Because the Sanhedrin desperately wanted to be rid of Paul. In fact, they were so desperate that they were willing to put aside the presumption of innocence that is granted under the Jewish law and that it's still granted under the code of most western countries and they were willing to put aside the procedures of the Sanhedrin itself in order to get a guilty verdict or in order to get a death sentence for Paul. So Paul saw this and he realized there was going to be no justice in this court. So when he saw this, right, what he does is he lights a theological fuse by pitting the Pharisees and the Sadducees against each other. However, this caused another violent outburst, which in turn caused the Roman commander to have to forcefully extract Paul from this situation. And so now what we're going to see today is a group of Jewish men, quite probably, quite possibly, and the leaders in the community join together in a plot to kill Paul with the blessing of the chief priests and the elders. So we're going to pick up now in chapter 23, verse 12. So here's what it says, starting in verse 12. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets him. So we're told in this first section, which takes us to verse 15, that more than 40 Jews formed a conspiracy, right? So that's verses 12 and 13. 
Lucy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. So we're told that 40 men formed a conspiracy. These 40 men are not identified. They were, however, not part of the chief priests and of the elders. Right? Because it says in verse 14, they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. So we see that these chief, they had already made an oath among themselves not to eat or drink anything. So what they did was they involved the Jewish leaders by approaching them and formalizing this oath they had taken, thinking that we'll get the official backing of the leaders in our community to do away with Paul. Right? So, so in verse 15, we're told how they wanted to do this, which says, Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring them before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here, right? So what they have suggested is an illegal and a sinister deception that we're gonna see, right? That these these leaders, right, embraced. Why? Because we're gonna see as this goes on. This was taken very seriously by a particular young man, right? So what they wanted to do is they wanted to get the commander, the commander of the Roman military, within Jerusalem to move Paul to a less secure place. They wanted to do this on the pretense of another closer examination. But they didn't really want to more closely examine Paul. What they wanted to do was they wanted to kill Paul on the way to this place, right? So in essence, what these conspirators were doing was they were offering these leaders plausible deniability. So in other words, the leaders wanted to kill Paul. These people wanted to kill Paul. And these people go to the leaders and say, Hey, do it this way. We'll lie and wait for Paul. We'll kill him. And now because we've killed him, we can you can say, we had nothing to do with this, which is what plausible deniability is. The Jewish leaders were saying, we're going to say, if we do this, we can then turn around and say to the Romans, hey, we had no part in killing this man. Right? But, even though we didn't want him dead, we had no part in killing him. So we see the leaders quickly agree to this plot. Right? Which demonstrates their treachery, right? Their treachery. So now let's pick up in verse 16, which says this. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks 
and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the, uh, to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner sent for me and asked me to permission him to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand and drew him aside and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, Some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't, don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at, ni at 9 tonight. Provide horses for Paul so they would be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Right, so, what we see in this section, we're not told how this plot got out, right? But fortunately, it did come to the ears of Paul's nephew, which I'll be seeing in verse 16. It says, But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and he told Paul, right? So what's happening here, right? So we see that this boy was likely not viewed as a threat, and was thus allowed access to the Roman military barracks, right? So the word we then see, right? So then in verse 17 it says, Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. Then verse 18 says, He took him to the commander, right? So carrying on with verse 18, said the centurion said, Paul, the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell him. Carrying on in verse 17, the commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside, and asked, What is it you want to tell me? So let's stop right there, right? So because this boy was not likely viewed as a threat, he was allowed to access into the barracks, right? We've already talked about that. So when Paul sent him to see the commander, right, he knows this boy is not a threat. But he also knows that Paul will not have sent him to see him unless he had something really important and really confidential in nature to tell him. So what does he what does he do? He takes this boy aside privately to ask him what is it you want me to tell you? So here's what the boy tells him starting in verse twenty. He said some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request.
dismiss the unnamed with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me, right? <clears throat> so, what, what, what happened, right? So, the commander is sensing here this urgency of the matter by the unusual nature of the request. Highly unusual for a prisoner in the jail system to send a message to the commander concerning something that was happening like this, right? been highly unusual. And that's why this man, the Roman commander, took this boy aside and spoke to him privately. Because he knew that he was giving him something really important, really urgent, that he needed to hear, right? So then he tells this boy, having sensed this urgency, knowing that he's already told him, hey, look, they're ready now to do it. Don't listen to the request they're going to give you. This request, and what does he tell him? He tells him, Hey, look, 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 don't tell him that you have reported this to me. Let's keep this a secret because we're going to have to move, Paul. And if you tell him, that runs the risk of Paul being killed. Now, let's pick up in verse 23, right? So he's going to tell us how the commander responded, right? So, in verse 23, here's how the commander responded. He said, Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers. 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at 9 tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Not a letter as follows, right? So what his actions here suggest that this information regarding this conspiracy against Paul was welcomed. The commander probably knew that they were going to pull out something like this, and so he was as soon as he got news that this plot was happening, he immediately took action to put it in response. So he had the commander sent Paul to Governor Phoenix with 470, but now I'm just going to think, well, that sounds like quite a lot when you're only dealing with 40 men. Right? So why does he, that, that sounds like quite a lot, that sounds like overkill, it's not really overkill. Because the commander knows that it's a minimum of 40 men that they're going to have to deal with. They may be having to deal with a whole bunch more. So he calculated this number as a number that he could would be enough to overwhelm a surprise attack of any legitimate size. Because you see, he sends 200 soldiers, right? Which would be 200 infantry, which would be two centuries of infantry, which two companies of infantry, one. 70 horsemen, right, so enough cavalry to support these infantrymen, and said 200 spearmen, so enough pikemen, enough men carrying lances, enough men they could fend off any attack they possibly could come into, right? So why does he do all this? He does all of this because this man, this Roman commander, was in enough trouble already for having nearly whipped a Roman citizen. So he was already in enough trouble for that. But if he were to allow Paul to die in his custody, right, it would have been even more devastating to this man's military career and quite possibly to this man's life, right? So he sends this mixed unit, this unit of infantry, cavalry, and spearmen, or so he gives them mounts. So he says, what does it say? Uh, provide horses for Paul.
calls that he would be taken safely to Governor Thielgen. So the cavalry was there to support the infantry. The spearmen were there to support everybody else. But the cavalry was also there so that they couldn't move quickly. Right? So that's why they were given mounts. That's why they were given mounts. That's why Paul was given mounts. They wanted him to move quick. This was a quick mission. You gotta get him out of town quick. You gotta get him to a safe place quick. So we're gonna talk a little bit more about that when we get on in to the next section, which will be tomorrow, right? Where we're gonna see the letter that is mentioned here that this Roman commander wrote to his immediate and we're also going to see the first part of Paul's trial before Governor Felix. But in order for you to be prepared for that, you got to read Job chapters 12 through 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 29 through 58, Psalm 39 or 1 through 13, and Proverbs 21. 30 through 31. Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to day 236 of Through the Bible in One Year. <coughs> so just a brief reminder what you should have read to be prepared for today's discussion. You should have read Job chapters 12 to 15. 15, 29 through 58, Psalm 39, 1-13, and Proverbs 21, 30 through 31. So we're gonna pick up now next chapter 23, verse 26, and we're gonna go through chapter 24, verse 16. So we saw yesterday, we saw the Roman commander make the decision that was in everyone's best interest to remove and why does Paul need to be removed from Jerusalem? For the simple reason that there was a plot to kill him, right? And so we saw yesterday, as we saw the Roman commander make military preparations to have Paul escorted to the Roman governor in Caesarea. And so what we're going to see today, we're going to see the letter that the Roman commander wrote to his immediate that the Jewish leadership made against him before Governor Felix. And then we're also going to see the first part of Paul's response to these accusations. So we're going to pick up now in verse 26, which says this, Claudius Lysias to his excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings to some man who was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusations had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him to deserve death or imprisonment. 
when I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So, now know the name of this, apparently of this Roman commander, which is Claudius Lysisius. And so his letter was preserved and it was made available to Luke. But however, we should note that it conveniently ignored any admission of mishandling by this man. He also mis- he also may have mis- he also misrepresented- excuse me, he also misrepresented exactly when he learned of Paul's citizenship. Right, so it says, uh, this man, he says in verse 27, this man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But they came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. That's not exactly how he learned that Paul was a Roman citizen, right? He learned that Paul was a Roman citizen only after he had put him out of the fray, was about to whip him, flog him, so that he could get more information out of him. And then Paul said, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, it, is it legal for you to do this? And then all of a sudden they had to stop, right? And so then it says, uh, you know, rescue him, so let's talk about that, right? So, the reference to rescue might refer to the protective custody phase of Paul's imprisonment, which is in all probability the case, right? So, at any rate, whether or not he misrepresented exactly how he learned of Paul's citizenship, or he misrepresented the fact that he rescued him at any rate, right? So the commander gave information about the prisoner in the situation, and he put himself in the best possible light. What else would you expect from a man whose career is quite possibly on the line? So now let's pick up in verse 31, which says this. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatrius. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him, while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on here. So right in, so in verse 31 we see, we talk the soldiers carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night, and brought him as far as Antipatrius. So this city was about 35 miles from Jerusalem. This was about a day's journey, or about a half a day's journey, so they were well enough away from Jerusalem that it would have been considered safe now, right? So we see that in verse 32, which says, It's the next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks, right? So once they arrived to this city, right, the, the soldiers were rested for the night, or for part of the day, and then they returned back to the barracks.
area with Paul, which means that the mission of the infantryman and the spearman that the Roman commander sent with his cavalry contingent was to ensure that this mountain force had enough protection. So, in other words, what would have happened if there had been an ambush? Like the cavalry could have ridden through the ambush while the soldiers and the spearmen fought the ambush off by the cavalry time to get Paul to safety, right? So, that's what the mission of the image would have been, right? So, he sent this mixed force so that he could, so that they could maintain the mobility that's needed to protect somebody, but also have enough strength there so that it could be split up. The cavalry could ride through the ambush or through whatever would come up on the road with Paul and get him on the safety of the infantrymen and the spearmen while the foot soldiers were able to hold off these people that are doing the attacking. Understand that, right? So, okay, this is a materially brilliant plan. So now we see they all arrive in Caesarea. So, which starts in verse 33. So, when the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace, right? So when they arrive in Caesarea, the first question now becomes jurisdiction. Does this man have the jurisdiction to hear Paul's case, to hear the case against Paul? Right? And the answer to that question Yes, because Paul was from Cilicia, and since Cilicia was under the governor's jurisdiction or the governor's administration, Felix then had the right to hear the case rather than extradite Paul to another governor, and so he then has to keep Paul in a safe, secure place while he's waiting for his accusers to arrive and so the place he puts him in is Herod's palace within Caesarea. Let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 24, right? So which says this, five days later the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix. We acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Right? So this, this speech starts 
different point, like, the very beginning, but it feels like the mirror pandering now, because now he's pandering to Felix, he's trying to get Felix to be sympathetic to himself, and pick up in verse 5, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world, he is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. So we're gonna pause right there because there's a little parenthetic notation in most Bibles. Even if you're reading electronic versions, right? So it's got a little bracket in the number seven there, right? So here's where it should go in that bracket, right? So we said they were going at the, uh, so we seized him, and then the parenthetic part would be, and we would have judged him in accordance with our law, but the commander Lysisius came and took him from us with much violence, ordering his accusers to come for our come before you. And it takes us up to verse 8 now, we're going to pick up. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges that we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Right? So we're told all the way back in verse 1, right? That Paul's trial, Paul's hearing, happened in less than a week. So he's only been in Caesarea for five days, and now, and we see that Ananias, the high priest, went down to Caesarea with some of the elders, and they brought with them a prosecuting attorney named Tortellus. So this man was probably a Roman citizen, like Paul, and if he was a Roman citizen like Paul, he was chosen to have the same sympathies from Felix's court that Paul might have. So should, what you should have noticed here, right, is that these charges were threefold. So after we saw this flamboyant opening, right, where he says, um, we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. So it starts with the flamboyancy, right? We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. So it starts off flamboyantly, and this is everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. So far he's saying, thank you for bringing peace and prosperity to our land. Now here comes the part where it kind of fizzles out, because now it goes to pandering. Which look verse 4, says, but in order not to worry you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. So that's the pandering part, he's saying, oh yes, you've done all of this stuff, and we're grateful to you for doing all that. And because of that, we would really like to hear you bring these charges against these men. So now we can get into these actual charges, right? So, the first charge was that Paul was a troublemaker, right? So we 
set. Right, in, we see these three charges laid out in the first five, right? Which says, we found this man to be a troublemaker, which was the first charge. They said Paul was a troublemaker, which was a personal attack. And it goes on to say, in verse five, we found this man to be a to be stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. So, in other words, the second charge is that he promoted sedition. Another charge that he promoted riots and rebellion against Roman rule. Right? Which is a new charge and a patently false charge also. And the last charge is what we see in verse 6, which says, and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. So they charged Paul with being a troublemaker, they charged him with promoting sedition, and they charged him with desecrating the temple, all of which are so now let's pick up in verse 10, and we're going to take this through the very end, right? So here's what that says. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple, or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues, or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect, and believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep excuse me, so I strive always keep my conscience clear before God and man. So now we get to Paul speaking. Now we get to Paul answering these absurd charges that this prosecuting attorney that the chief priests have brought with them in an attempt to get the governor to do what they themselves couldn't do, which was kill Paul. That should sound very, very familiar to the way they treated another man years earlier, right? Which sounds very similar to the way they treated Jesus, right? So, the, the chief priest and the leaders of the Jewish people couldn't kill Jesus themselves, so they knew they had to make some charges stick in a Roman court in order to get Jesus killed. So they're doing the exact same thing with Paul. So Paul now speaks up and he defends himself. And so Paul's purpose of speaking wasn't merely to exonerate himself, 
Potter wouldn't care about exonerating himself. What he did care about was doing three things, and he had three goals. Right in his speech, his first goal was to deny the charges. Right, he wanted to say, hey, these charges are absolutely false, right? His second goal was to affirm Christianity. To share the gospel with this governor and with everyone who was in hearing. And his third goal was to give a powerful testimony. So Paul's first goal is to deny the charges, right? So Paul goes on to answer these charges in the order that they're given, ignoring the first one, which was the personal attack, the part about the troublemaker, right? So the first charge he answers is the charge regarding sedition, right? So it says <coughs> in um, verse 11... You can easily verify that number one, 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And the accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple, or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues, or anywhere else in the city. Right? However, I, I admit that I worship God of our ancestors as a follower of the way which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is, in, that is written in the prophets and they have the same hope as these men themselves. There will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear uh, before God. Right? So, Paul tells the governor, right? in regards to this first charge of sedition, right? That he only went to the temple to worship. He didn't go there to disturb any trouble. He didn't go there to stir rebellion against Rome. He didn't go there to cause any riots. He went there merely to worship God. And the people got so mad at him because they presumed that he went there to do skipped over verse 13 because we saw that he admitted in that last section that I went there only to worship God. And so his, so the second charge, because he only answered two of the three charges, he didn't answer the charge about the fact that they said he was a troublemaker. Because I'm sure Paul probably would have said, I'm a troublemaker in their eyes. Am I a troublemaker? No, not really. I've done nothing to break the law. I've not done anything that would cause me to be a troublemaker. They just want to call me that because they want to attack me personally. So he didn't answer me personally attack. He answered the charge of sedition because that would have been a very serious charge. And he answered the charge of desecration, right, by saying this in verse 13, which we skipped over. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. He's like, they can't prove it. They gotta be able to prove beyond a doubt. Beyond a reasonable doubt to use modern day legal terms, right? That I went there with the purpose and the intention of desecrating the temple. That I knowingly and willingly brought a Gentile into the temple courts in order to 
desecrated. They have to be able to prove this right. But most important, we see in this latter half, is that Paul got to the real issue, which was his faith, which he referred to as the way, which is what we see in verse 14 that we already read. So it says this, However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. Right? I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. Right? So his, what he's saying is his faith was not against the law, his faith was not against the prophets. In other words, his faith was not against the Old Testament. It was not against the canon, the Jewish canon that existed at that point in time. It did not violate the word of God, which is what they would have been arguing at this point in time, that Paul's faith was completely separate from Judaism, and that therefore his faith, his belief in Jesus as the Messiah was proof enough that he was acting in rebellion against Rome, right? And then he goes on to say, and I have the same hope in verse 15, goes on to say in verse 15, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection, excuse me, both the righteous and the wicked. Right, so the crux of the issue that these men had here, right, was that the was the fact of this, the crux of the issue at this point in time, right? Was the hope of the resurrection, not these charges. It wasn't the charges that were against him, because they were only bringing these charges against him as a way to get him to shut up and get him to quit speaking about the hope that Jesus brings. The fact that, hey, there is a hope. You don't have to the entire letter of the law. You don't have to think, well, well have I followed the letter of the law entirely? You ain't gotta think that way no more. Because Jesus has fulfilled every aspect of the law. That's why he died the death he did. That's why he said that I have the same hope in God that these men themselves have the way of preservation with the righteous and the way of in verse 16 that says this so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man because I have this same hope because I am following the most perfect the only perfect man the only person who could have given anybody hope you see without the death of Christ without the resurrection of Christ there is no hope of resurrection. Because we will all die in sin. And when we die in sin, there is no hope of a bodily resurrection. There is no hope of us going to live eternally with Christ. And that's what we're going to pick up tomorrow as Paul concludes his defense against these charges. And we of Paul's trial before, excuse me, Paul's first trial for a government official, so in order for you to be prepared for that, you need to read Job chapters 16 through 19, 1 Corinthians 16, Psalm 
forty one through ten and Proverbs twenty 